The following audio is from The Well. We are a church that is committed to gospel growth, family formation, and missional engagement in Hastings, Nebraska. More information about The Well can be found at www.thewellhastings.com. We hope the message you are about to hear will spur you on to growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be formed as a follower of Jesus, and to be engaged in the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost within a yard of hell. Uh, Our Christmas series has been focused on walking through all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, over the last four weeks. And the, uh, the intent in that was to look at the entire book together each week and ask a singular question, who does the author of the book say that Jesus is? So that we might get a picture of our Savior, Jesus. And the, the reason for this season in Christmas is celebrating Jesus, right? And so that was the intent behind that. It's been, a, it's been awesome for me to study through it and then to preach through it as well. And I hope that the Lord's using it in your life. So I want to dive right into the Gospel of John. I'm going to read through a number of different passages from John. And so you can follow along on the screen. And I'll do my best to kind of notate where we're at if you would like to grab a Bible and try to flip pages and keep up with me as I go. So I'm going to begin in John chapter 1 and verse 1. This is... The Word of God to us this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now, if you flip forward to chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, I'm sure this verse is uh, pretty well known by all of us. But beginning in verse 16 of chapter, chapter 3, John says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because 
He has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now if you want to flip forward to chapter 12 with me, beginning in verse 35, Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now if you flip over to chapter 19 and verse 24. This is after the resurrection. John says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails... And place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side. I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now look with me at chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Would you uh, bow your heads with me and let's pray. Father, um, Lord, we, we come before you this morning on this uh, Christmas Eve, a season of the year where we think much about Jesus, his entrance into this earth. And Lord, I ask this morning as we wrap up our series, um, focusing on who Jesus is according to 
the gospel authors. God, I pray that you would come and help us to not only believe, but to also trust. I know that Nathan opened us this morning uh, talking about trusting in you. And so, God, I, I pray that you would help us to do exactly that this morning as we hear your word and study your word together. I trust you to come, remove any barriers that would hinder us from hearing from you or believing in you or trusting you. Renew our hearts, refresh our minds, and help us to believe you, to trust you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. question I want to start us off with this morning is this. Uh, what do you struggle to believe about Jesus? Just think about it for a moment. What do you struggle to believe about Jesus? Now, for some of you, it'd be like, man, I don't even know if I believe Jesus is real, right? Like Santa Claus. Like, part of me knows that Santa Claus is not real. Sorry, kids. Easy, don't shoot me. Hey, I didn't mean, I didn't mean, it's just, it's the way it is. My daughter's ripping my case from the, from the front row here. Hey, some of us, like, think of Jesus in that way, though, right? Like, I don't even know if he's real. Um, I don't know if he really loves me. Can, can he really love me? Um, did, did he really do all of the things that the Bible says he did? There's a lot of things that we might struggle to believe about Jesus. Now, the next question I want to ask you, though, I think is even more important than the first question. The first one is diagnostic about what you struggle to believe. The second one is a little bit deeper diagnostic, and it is, why do you struggle to believe that? Why? Once you identify what you struggle to believe, maybe it's his sovereignty or his love or his goodness or his faithfulness, whatever it is, once you've got the what, now ask the why. Why do I struggle to believe that? You see, to believe something is to accept that something is true and reliable. Agreed? When you and I believe that something is true and reliable, then what we inevitably do is we place our trust in that thing. We don't trust what we don't believe to be true or reliable. Agreed? For instance, if I believe that a chair will hold my weight, then I will trust the chair to hold my weight by actually sitting in it. If I don't believe that the chair is trustworthy, reliable, to hold my weight, then I'm an idiot if I sit in it, aren't I? It's a, it's a, it's a stupid kind of a faith then. I'm, I'm placing faith in something, trusting something that I know, that I believe will not hold me. Um, the same comes with relationships, doesn't it? If you or I believe that a person is going to be honest with us or loyal to us, then we trust, don't we? We trust them to be our friend. Uh, this is what it means to have faith. Literally means to believe and to therefore trust. A story is told of a man standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. He's got a rope strung across the Grand Canyon and he's got a wheelbarrow. Sets the wheelbarrow down and he grabs a, uh, a big camping stove and a cooler full of food and he tightrope walks out above the Grand Canyon and cooks a nine course meal from that cooler and that stove. 
And there's a crowd on the side of the Grand Canyon watching, ooing and aahing. Can't believe he's doing what I'm watching him do. He gets done cooking the nine-course meal, walks back across that tightrope, hands the food out through the crowd. And the crowd is amazed. It's a miracle. He grabs the wheelbarrow, and he asks the crowd, he says, do you believe that I can put you in this wheelbarrow and wheel you across this Grand Canyon? And people say, well, yeah, I believe you can do that. I just watched you cook a nine-course meal. And he says, well, then why don't you get in the wheelbarrow and let me do it? And that's where the rubber meets the road when it comes to faith, believing and trusting. That's the essence of what it means to have faith. Christmas season, I think, is a time when our ability to believe, to trust, oftentimes gets tested, gets shaken. Sometimes I hope it gets strengthened. It usually has something to do with our life experiences, doesn't it? The, the health of our family, maybe the relational things we're struggling with, the financial things we're struggling with, a lot of that just kind of comes to light during the Christmas season. And our ability to believe in the trust in Jesus and who he is. Sadly, I think for many, I think even in the church today, uh, believing in Jesus really is no different than believing in Santa. It feels like a fairy tale. I don't know what your childhood was like or what growing up for you was like, but for me... Uh, growing up, Christmas oftentimes was really confusing, sometimes very difficult. I, I grew up with, uh, uh, without my dad around. He left when I was five. My mom seemed to have a different boyfriend uh, every year. And most of those boyfriends, most of you know me, they weren't good men. They weren't trustworthy men. And my mom would tell me about Jesus during Christmas, which was an odd thing. She'd tell me about Jesus during Christmas while she's smoking her weed and drinking her whiskey and listening to her favorite rock and roll. Um, she would tell me things like, you know, Jesus is not like all these other men that you've known. Jesus loves you. He died for you. She would tell me those things, and it was very hard for me to believe them, to believe that they were true. Not just because of all the men that I'd experienced in my mom's life, but also because my mom was a jacked up mess, okay? And I'm not trying to talk trash about her. It was just, it was just a jacked up mess. Um, she was an emotionally broken woman, I would say, very. She left a lot of scars uh, deep down inside of me, <laughs> for sure. The time I left my mom's house, uh, the ripe young age of 17, I had experienced a life that was full of neglect and abandonment. Rejection, manipulation, emotional abuse, physical abuse. Um, I knew, at least here, that there was a God. And I knew that he had a son named Jesus that had come into the world during this Christmas season. He was born so that he would die on a cross, born to leave a tomb empty on the third day. I knew that this Jesus supposedly loved me. That was the way I would talk about it. But I had a really hard time believing I knew, but knowing something in your head and believing it, that's two different things. I had a hard time believing and trusting that the God who allowed my life to happen the way that it had would really be a loving God. And that's not all either, okay? That's just the experiences of the sin outside of me that affected my life. 
I also had sin inside of me that affected my life, right? My response to the sin done against me was to find sinful ways of coping. So I would stumbled into what I would call, or ran headlong into what I would call, you call them daily habits, you call them addictions, you can. Um, that's what they were. Um, ran to these daily routines, um, trying to escape the pain, uh, trying to control pleasure. Because if you grow up traumatized, you try to add pleasure to combat that. You can't control pain, but you can control pleasure. So, I, you know, my list is lengthy. Sexual perversion of all kinds, drunkenness, drug abuse. These are the things that I used to medicate my soul. Right? What was really happening is I, I actually believed and I trusted that those things would provide what I desperately longed for. I longed for healing. I wanted to escape. I really deeply desired acceptance. I also wanted to be in control because when you grow up in chaos, you want control. So how could Jesus truly, really love the filthy person I had become? Those are the questions Believing in Jesus, for me, again, at that time, was probably no different than believing in Santa. It was a fairy tale. <clears throat> you don't have to have the same life experiences that I had. You don't have to struggle with the same sins as I struggled with to know that we are intrinsically shaped by the world we live in and the sins we commit shapes us in a certain direction. When you think about what it is that you struggle to believe about Jesus, and you think about the reasons why you struggle to believe those things about Jesus, then I think you are right at the heart of John's Gospel. The heart of John's gospel has everything to do with this word believe. John used the word believe um, roughly 18 times in the passages that I read at the beginning of this message. And it most definitely is the main word that he uses all throughout his gospel in relation to Jesus. It's that you would believe in Jesus. The last passage that I read, John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Most scholars would say, if not every scholar I've read would say, that that passage is the core passage of the book. It is the coat hook that you hang the book on. It is John's purpose statement for his gospel. This is the reason I'm writing this gospel to you. Here's what he says. I want you to hear it again. He says, Jesus did many other things, signs, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, this is his purpose statement, these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
So John's entire purpose in writing this gospel is to literally testify to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you and I so that we might believe in him and then thereby trust in him for eternal life. Now the gospel of John literally, all throughout it, if you do a survey of it, literally, and here's what you could do. You could, when you, next time you read the entire Gospel of John, you could, on a piece of paper, draw a column. People who believed, people who didn't believe. And then underneath that, the reason they believed and the reason they didn't believe. If you study the Gospel of John that way and you make that list, it will do wonders for your heart. It will do wonders for your soul. Because the Gospel of John literally teaches us that some people are going to believe in Jesus, but others are going to reject him. That's John's whole point all the way through. And John wants us to know that what Jesus does is he actually accepts those who accept him, right? And he rejects those who reject him. That's verses 18 and 36 of chapter 3. Now, at the end of the day, um, what John does is he presents Jesus as a very polarizing character. Now, I know that that is not something you're going to hear often in churches today because we like to really focus on the inclusivity of Jesus, And it's true, Jesus includes people in his circle that would make all of us in this room very uncomfortable. I was having a conversation with one of the guys this morning about what it would have been like to be in the room that day when Jesus is sitting at the table with the pride-filled Pharisee who had all of his act together, and this prostitute walks in. I'm thinking barely clothed and probably drop-dead gorgeous. And she starts washing his feet with her tears and then rubbing lotion on his feet. That is a very intimate thing. And Jesus doesn't lose his cool. He doesn't look at this woman in lust. But he does look at the Pharisee and say, yo, I know what's going on in your head. We should talk about your issues of pride. You didn't even receive me very well. And this woman, somebody who makes your stomach turn, she received me well. So Jesus definitely is inclusive, but he's also very polarizing. Jesus is one of those characters in history, right? Not just a historical character, but he's a historical character who creates a dividing line. You're either in or you're out. You're either with me or you're against me. You either believe in me or you don't. It's very clear. John's very clear about this all throughout his gospel. The question is, is what was it that made Jesus so divisive and polarizing? I just gave us one story, right? But let's think about it. When you look throughout John's gospel and you do a survey of it, you'll find basically four to five different things that John says or testifies to about Jesus that makes Jesus a very polarizing, divisive character. First, in John chapter 1, verse 14, John testifies to the fact that Jesus is the word who became flesh. Now, we read that oftentimes, we just kind of skip right by it. But the reality is this. John used this kind of language. He presents Jesus this way, the word who became flesh. Presents him that way to show that Jesus is the manifestation of God in the flesh. This is a notion that would have been very divisive in the surrounding culture. Okay? The culture that Jesus was in, and oftentimes the culture we're in, um, does not accept the idea that Jesus is the Word in the flesh. The very idea that Jesus is God in the flesh, you think about it, that's something that even some people who call themselves Christians actually do reject. 
The idea that Jesus could be God is a tough one. And all throughout um, church history, there have been some who have rejected that and yet still tried to call themselves Christian, Christian. Very divisive, very polarizing. Secondly, John testifies to the fact that Jesus is the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God is a very polarizing statement in that culture and in ours. When John describes Jesus in this way, right, he describes him as the sacrificial Messiah, describes him as the deliverer of his people. He's the only means, the only means, not not one of many, but the only means of escape from the penalty of sin. He's our only hope, not, not one of many ways of hope, but our only hope for eternity. And in a culture that values pluralism, and if you don't think that the culture in Jesus' day valued pluralism, this idea that there are plural gods and you can choose whatever path and God you want to follow and we're all going to the same place someday, if you think that's unique to our Western culture, go back to the first message in this series and listen to the cultural background of, that I did. The, the Greek culture loved the idea of pluralism and relativism. Loved it. You could believe in whatever God you wanted to believe in as long as you didn't make the claim that they was the only God. We live in the same culture today. So the idea that Jesus is the Lamb of God and the only answer for eternity would be a very divisive, polarizing statement. Third, uh, John testifies to the fact that Jesus is the personification of wisdom, perfect wisdom in the flesh. Also, the agent who was sent by God to speak and act on his behalf. References for all of this would be in my notes. This is an audacious claim. It's a polarizing claim. To make a claim like that in a culture that values the lukewarm melting pot of relative truths, whatever you say is true is true for you. How could anyone ever claim to have a perfect truth? How could anyone ever claim to be perfectly wise or to actually speak for God? See, truth and wisdom in that culture and in ours, it's said to be dictated by the culture itself, which drives me batty because the culture is broken. Why don't I want to allow something that's broken to dictate what's true? There's no truth in anything that's broken. It's broken. I need truth to speak into the brokenness, and that's why I need Jesus so much. Think about it. Somebody who claims to speak on God's behalf, that puts a target on your back, doesn't it? That's what happened to Jesus. Fourth um, thing that John testifies to in regards to Jesus is the fact that Jesus actually is God. Now, all throughout his gospel, he does this in a very unique way, more unique than the other gospels. And, and pause here for a minute. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke. Those three are known as synoptic gospels, meaning they're very synonymous. They follow similar timelines. They tell similar stories. Um, but in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John is, is, is a standalone gospel, okay? There, there's like less than, I think, 20% of John's gospels, the, the stories in John's gospel, make into the other three. So John's gospel adds an awful lot to the picture. Almost, we'll say almost 80% of John's gospel is fresh material, that being said, one of the things that is very unique about John, as he writes about Jesus, is he reveals Jesus as God. And he does it in the way that he uses the I am statements, places where Jesus says, I am. Seven times. Seven times in the Gospel of John. 
He portrays Jesus as saying, I am. In fact, this kind of a claim, and you may not get it yet, but this kind of a claim would be so audacious for somebody to make in the Jewish history. Because Jews would hear this as blasphemy, according to John chapter 10. It would cause some people to accept him, cause some people to reject him. But Jesus claimed to be the great I am. I am the bread of life, he said. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. When he does this, he inevitably places a bullseye on his back for his enemies to take aim at because in making those claims, he literally is claiming to be the great I am of the scriptures. All throughout the Old Testament, this is the way God referred to himself. I am. People will ask, who created God? Nobody created God. This is a hard one for us to wrap our minds around. Nobody created God because he is the great I am. I am that I am, that I always have been, that I always will be. So we always remember it. That's a hard one to believe. That's who John says he is. So when John says that he wants to present Jesus as someone that we can believe in and trust with our lives, he's trying to get after the question, what is it that you don't believe about Jesus? And why don't you believe it? I'm hoping that for some of you, you got the what and you're starting to get the why. Maybe. What is the what? And what is the why? What don't you believe? And why don't you believe it? When John presents Jesus, presents him as someone that we can believe in, that we can trust with our lives, he presents him as the word who became flesh, the Lamb of God, wisdom in the flesh, a messenger from God, God in the flesh. This idea, this overriding idea that God condescended from heaven to this filthy earth in the person of Jesus to spend time with filthy people just like you and I, this is an idea that causes division between those who believe and those who don't believe. There is a massive Grand Canyon-like chasm dividing those two groups. John doesn't merely just rely on this, everything I've just laid out. John also uh, relies on the miracles of Jesus in his gospel to help us to believe. I want you to think with me for a minute about John's use of the miracles of Jesus. He uses them very strategically. Uh, I hope that you can grasp this with me. The first half of John's gospel, you can break John's gospel into two halves. First half is chapters 1 through 11. In that first half, chapters 1 through 11, you're going to see seven different miracles designed to help us wrestle with Jesus, who he is, to believe in him. And then in the second half of John's gospel, this is chapters 12 through 21, and in chapter 12, there's a hinge point, a turning point, where the door opens from the first part to the second part. What we see in that second part is all the events that lead up to and culminate in Jesus' death and resurrection, with that resurrection being the final and most powerful of Jesus' miracles. Look at them with me briefly. I'm going to try to move through them quick. All eight. <clears throat> the first one, Jesus turns water into wine, right? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Why? Why does he do this? 
This miracle took place at the wedding at Cana in Galilee, right after Jesus called his disciples to follow him, right? And through this miracle, here's what we see. Here's what we see. We see that Jesus is powerful over a created substance like water. And if he is powerful over something that is created, and that helps people to believe in him, which it did, the disciples believed in him in that moment, if that all truly happened, then don't we have to acknowledge that what John is trying to get across to us is that since Jesus is powerful over a created substance, then he's definitely the creator. That's the point being made. Do you believe that Jesus is the creator? Secondly, <coughs> Jesus heals the official's son. Chapter 4, verses 46 to 54. This miracle happened right after Jesus visited the woman at the well in Samaria. Many of the people from town in Samaria came to believe in Jesus because of her testimony and then later believed in Jesus because of hearing from Jesus for themselves. That's our vision for the well, by the way, is everybody would hear from Jesus for themselves <coughs> as well as share it with others. But when Jesus heals the official son, right on the back end of that, um, it's meant to teach us that Jesus is powerful over sickness and disease. And the official in his household believed because of this. Now think about this. There's sometimes, I don't think there's anything more powerful at times than sickness or disease that shakes our belief in Jesus, right? You get super duper sick and you start wondering, where is God at? Is he here? But let me say this too. There's sometimes nothing more powerful than in the midst of sickness and disease, having God show up in powerful ways where he sustains you through that, walks with you, and shows you that he's there. Even these momentary glimpses can be more than enough in the midst of sickness and disease when God shows up in the form of Jesus in your life to strengthen your belief, right? Third, Jesus heals an invalid at the pool of Bethesda. This is chapter five. And this miracle happens during the feast of the Jews in Jerusalem, and it's on a Sabbath day. And, and when Jesus does this, when he heals the invalid at the pool of Bethesda, um, we learn something more about Jesus being powerful over sickness and disease. Not just that he's powerful over sickness and disease. John takes the story a little bit further, and he basically points out that Jesus is definitely powerful over sickness and disease, but something that has been around for a long time. This person who was healed had struggled with this for 38 years. Now, there's something different about getting sick for a week or two, okay, and then being sick with something that disables you for 38 years. And you can drill down into whatever sins have plagued you your entire life. And you can say, you know what, Jesus can show up, and he is powerful over that. And I need to submit and surrender as I believe him. But it takes believing first, doesn't it? See, the core of our idolatry and the core of our imprisonment, are the core of our slavery to Satan, sin, and death, the core of the reason that we don't walk in freedom and maturity in Christ. Core of the reason that I go back to filthy troughs of sin at times is because I fail to believe in who Jesus is and therefore I fail to trust him. And I begin to believe and trust a created thing instead. Fourth, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five barley loaves and two fish. I love this story. I don't know about you guys, but 
you know, I've watched it depicted in movies since I was a little kid. It's just crazy. Like, five little loaves of bread, two fish, feeds 5,000 people, has enough left over to feed cities, it seems like. This miracle um, happens uh, right before Passover. And you think about the significance of Passover, the fact that Jesus is going to be crucified, and that his broken body is what's going to sustain us. Um, so what's going to... It's what's going to take us out of sin. It's what's going to remove the penalty of sin, presence, power, and penalty, right? You think about the foreshadowing that's taking place in this. So this happens right before Passover, and and in the midst of this miracle, when Jesus feeds 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, uh, we learn that Jesus is powerful uh, over our physical needs. People actually proclaim that Jesus is the prophet who would come into this world in verse 14. This is chapter 6, 1 through 15. Jesus also later then claimed, um, because of this, he said, hey, I am the bread of life. Right? It's one of the I am statements. Reminding us that Jesus is the one who not only gives eternal life, as he says here, for sure. But what John is teaching us overall in that one miracle is that Jesus is the only one who can sustain us. That's why we eat food, is to be sustained, to stay alive, right? And Jesus is saying, hey, look. A man can't just live on regular bread alone. Man needs every word that comes from the Father. And let's remember that Jesus is the word in the flesh who will be broken on our part, right? So Jesus is the only one who can sustain us. There's no eternal nourishment that can be found outside of Jesus. Think about that one statement in relation to the fact that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. There has to be an opposite to that, right? Like there has to be a bread of death, maybe. There's moldy bread. Have you ever eaten moldy bread on purpose? I wake up in the middle of the night and I eat stupid things because of my sleeping pills. I like sweet stuff. It's strange. I have habanero and jalapeno jelly in the fridge, and I make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches with that. I love it because I also love spicy stuff. And it's usually pretty dark in my house, and I'm just stumbling around in the dark, because there's no light. Doesn't that fit really well? Because light, dark, all that, yeah, anyways. <laughs> Thank you, Holy Spirit. <laughs> um, where was I? Yeah, so I'm eating a sandwich in the middle of the night, and just chowing away. I'm half awake and half asleep, and I look down, and the bread is all moldy. Gross. You would never do that intentionally, would you? Um, but we do when we go sin, don't we? We believe that the sweetness of that sin is going to sustain us. We want to trust in it. And then we find out later, when our eyes finally get opened, when we have our eyes shut, or we put our glasses on, we're no longer blind, I guess, in the darkness, eating at the table. You find out what you've been feasting on is actually absolutely disgusting. Wakes you up. And Jesus says, hey, I'm the bread of life. Feast on me instead. Fifth, Jesus walks on water, right? The disciples are laboring to get across the sea in a rowboat in the middle of a stormy night. Jesus calms the storm, the wind, and the sea. They obey him. Why does the storm, the wind, and the sea obey Jesus, but we don't? The answer is we disobey because we struggle with believing in Jesus. Therefore, we struggle to trust that something or someone other than Jesus is better. We think sometimes that our own ingenuity 
<coughs> our own intellect, our own hard work, our own ability to reason, that that's better than Jesus. Sixth, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath who was born blind, right? He does it by spitting in his hand, spit and mud, puts in the dude's eyes, has him wash his eyes in a pool of water. This is in chapter 9. And this miracle happens immediately after Jesus has been teaching in the temple. Then he had to flee because the Jews are going to stone him. And he just passes right through the crowd like the Matrix. It's amazing, I think. Christians could make better Jesus movies. I'll just I'm going to put that out there. Most of them are cheesy and low budget, and they just suck, okay? It's, they're not movies I would go to the theater to watch unless it was like, okay, it's my obligation because I'm a Christian. I have to give money to this movie. I don't really want to because it's poor, right? That's my short little rant. When I envision these things taking place, I envision Hollywood-style, well-budgeted, Matrix-style, Jesus just passes through the crowd. In that miracle, when Jesus heals this man born blind, shortly after he just walks through the crowd, we learn that Jesus has been sent to do God's work. In the midst of that, what Jesus is doing is he's separating believers from unbelievers. And he's separating Believers who are not spiritually blind, and I think you need to hold on to this, okay? He's separating people who are not spiritually blind and are therefore believers from those who are spiritually blind and are therefore unbelievers. Does everybody catch it? Unbelievers are what? Somebody tell me. Spiritually blind. Those who are believers are what? Not spiritually blind. Okay, I once was blind, but now I can see. We're all coming back together, right? We get this? This is what Jesus is doing. He's separating the spiritually blind from those who are not spiritually blind. The unbelievers from believers. Ask yourself this question again. Why do I struggle to believe this about Jesus? What is it that you struggle to believe about Jesus and why do you struggle to believe it? And remember, Jesus separates the spiritually blind from those who are not spiritually blind. The believers from the unbelievers. Are you tracking with me? Good, good, good. Seventh, seventh miracle that takes place. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead after four days in the tomb. And this is, uh, this is an absolutely fantastic miracle that takes place. And it acts as the climax to the first half of the story. Remember uh, chapters 1 through 11 are the first half of the story? This is the climax of the first story. It's kind of like the first part of the movie that ends with, the guy in Die Hard not falling off the tower. Okay, I brought Die Hard up because it's a Christmas movie, Christmas movie right? So it, that's the first climax, and then you got the second half of the movie. I oh, know, easy. That's the first, that's what's happening here. Okay, this is the first half of the movie. Climax, and then it's going to climax again. This is the first half. He raises Lazarus from the dead, shows the Jesus powerful over death itself. Basically, all through chapters 1 through 11, John is setting us up. He wants us to believe. He shows us all the miracles. He shows us all the things about Jesus that are polarizing. And by the time he gets to the Christian, like this, this top end of the climax of it, he goes, and guess what? Jesus is powerful over death. And then in chapter 12, it all shifts, and there's a door that opens. <coughs> and that door opens to the final miracle of the book where Jesus is raised from the dead, right? after being crucified. So these miracles of Jesus in John's gospel, they're, they're presented basically in like a legal fashion. All of these arguments are, are presented in such a way to lay all the evidence out and say, do you believe? And to ask, what don't you believe? And to ask, why don't you believe it? 
And then when he gets into chapter 11, right, he starts to turn into chapter 12, he starts to answer the question for us. Look, it's much less about what you don't believe, and it's much more about why you don't believe. That gets us into the third and final part of this. John uses the Old Testament to lay it all out. John 12, 37-43, we read this at the beginning of the message. John quotes Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6. He quotes it as an explanation for the people's unbelief. He says, this is the reason you don't believe. Despite all the various signs that Jesus has already done, climaxing in Lazarus being raised from the dead, heals a man born blind, feeds the 5,000, even though they've seen all these miracles already, and they've heard Jesus say, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am, they still don't believe. Why don't they believe? Why now, too? It's another question you ask when you're reading it. Why, why does John quote Isaiah right now at this point in this gospel? Because there's no doubt there's been a lot of people all the way up until now that didn't believe. Chapter 12 is the turning point. John's been focusing up until this point on miracles and discourses. And in chapter 12, verse 23... Um, Jesus says, the hour has come. This is the doorway. This is the hinge. <coughs> the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And this signifies a turn in the story. The turn in the story leads us to verses 37 through 43 of chapter 12. This is the, this is the core of why we don't believe. <coughs> in these verses, John is not only explaining that there are people who don't believe, he's explaining why. He says, they don't believe because these people's eyes are blind. That's what he's saying. These people's eyes, according to the narrative, and supported by Isaiah, because what Isaiah is talking about. They've been blinded. Why, though? Why have they been blinded? They've been blinded because they relied on their ability to see signs. They always want to see Jesus do things. <coughs> now, translate this back to us. What, what have you been walking with in your life that you just wish Jesus would just take away? You've asked him a million times, would you take this away? And he hasn't. A circumstance in your life, a sin you struggle with, a weakness you walk with, and you've asked him. And what you're asking for is you're asking for a sign. You're saying, you know, if you would release me from this, I would believe you. And you and I are doing nothing different than the people John is talking to. We're actually claiming, I don't believe you because I really just want to see a sign. If you would do this, Jesus, I would believe in you. That's John's core accusation. His core accusation against an unbelieving humanity is this. You and I, to answer that question, why don't we believe? We don't believe, not because Jesus is not trustworthy, because he is. Completely faithful, completely trustworthy. <coughs> we don't believe because he's not trustworthy. We don't believe simply because we're spiritually blind. When we're spiritually blind, why? Because we love the attention that we get from humans and created things rather than love that we can have from God. We seek that. We crave that. That's the reason we struggle to believe in Jesus. And I think the prayer for all of us should be this. God, help us to see. It's like the man who prayed, God, help me in my unbelief. I believe. Help me in my unbelief. 
It's almost like he's saying, I believe that I don't believe. The spiritually blind people are different than regularly blind people. Normally blind people know they're blind. They know that. They carry a cane most time. They know they're blind. Spiritually blind people have no clue that they're spiritually blind. <coughs> but I'll tell you this. If you want to know where you're spiritually blind at, start with, what do I not believe about Jesus, and why do I not believe it? And you'll start to get to the core of it, and then start to ask God, open my eyes so that I might see you in all of your glory. So in conclusion, we've now walked through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John's conclusion to us, his purpose to us is to say, do you believe? Again, I asked you earlier about what you struggle to believe about Jesus. I asked you why you struggle to believe it. I want you to remember that what you do not believe, you will not trust. And I want you to remember this too. A, a relationship without trust is a broken relationship in need of repair. Every counselor will tell you that. <coughs> and what Jesus wants to have with you is a relationship, right? But that relationship with Jesus will be a mess at best if you don't identify what you struggle to believe and why you struggle to believe it. Because in the midst of that, if you do not believe, you will not trust. And John, John wants us to believe and to ultimately trust in Jesus. And so he goes to great lengths all throughout his gospel to describe Jesus in these ways. Let me summarize one last time and we'll be done. He goes to great lengths to describe Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. He's the Word who became flesh. He is the Lamb of God who was sacrificed so that sinners like you and I could become children of God. He is the personification of perfect wisdom. He is God's perfect ambassador who came to speak on his behalf and to do what God wanted to do on earth. Ultimately, at the end of the day, Jesus is God. He's powerful over created substances, powerful over sickness and disease, powerful over the elements of nature such as storms, the wind, and the sea. He literally is God in the flesh, crucified, risen, and returning in victory over Satan, sin, and death. And he can be trusted. Even if you go back to my story and you ask the questions that I asked, could that God really love filthy me? Could that God really have been present in the midst of the trauma I experienced? And the answer is yes on both accounts. I don't know what his purposes were. But could it be, could it be that all of those circumstances and all of that sin in my life were allowed, if not even put together in a designer type fashion so that I might fall in love with Jesus one day. And maybe the same is true for you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would come and meet us over the next few moments in the midst of the things that we struggle to believe about you. And I pray, God, that you would strengthen us. Help us to believe in you, to trust in you. Help us to be in right relationship with you. Father, I trust you to do this. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. <laughs>